everyone. This is Sellers. And this is Stormy. And And this this is is Unforgotten. Unforgotten, where each episode will highlight unsolved missing, murdered, and suspicious death cases in Alabama in order to raise awareness and hopefully obtain some answers for victims and their families. Please remember that any individual referenced in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law, and any opinions or views expressed in the podcast are solely those of participants. Listener discretion is advised, as some of the content discussed in the podcast may contain violence or graphic descriptions and may not be suitable for all audiences. Be sure to join our Unforgotten Patreon channel today to gain exclusive benefits, including early access to ad-free episodes and bonus content. By subscribing, you'll also be supporting the efforts of ACCA in assisting families in raising awareness for Alabama cold cases. Previously on episode 15. Michelle and Paul were married shortly before Michelle gave birth to their first child. Michelle's mother was ultimately awarded custody of Anthony. Paul and Michelle brought home their second child, a beautiful baby girl named Andrea. A year after that, Michelle gave birth to their third child, another bouncing baby boy. And he also said that he was not Craig's father because she had left him in 1989. Craig was put up for adoption. DFS had contacted Paul to see if he would like Andrea to come live with him. Suffering from some form of PTSD from her short life already. Andrea had been reported missing in November of 1993. Two days into the search, Franklin County Sheriff's Office began to suspect foul play. The only person who apparently didn't believe Thomason was representing the Gonzalez family was Thomason. What we do have, though, is what we believe is a copy of Kim's written statement. Kim Gonzalez gave the following voluntary statement to investigator Chris Hargett. I was scared Andrea was not breathing. I stopped on the bridge, and I think I threw Andrea off the right side of the road. All of this happens in the bathroom, but yet she takes Andrea's sheets off her bed. Almost like she knew that Andrea banged her head, and she realized that she said it, and so she had to say something to qualify it. There's rumors that are pretty prevalent that Andrea was never murdered, that she was sold. She remembers everything in an environment that she's familiar with. But she doesn't remember hardly anything from an environment she's not familiar with. Both been charged with capital murder. They would have been so much safer if they'd have just stuck by the story she was kidnapped. She gave this statement because he told her if she took sole responsibility, then he'd sign over his parental rights and that she was doing this to protect her children. Would that be an excuse to go back into custody and not be around Paul? She said the first time she actually felt safe was when she went back to jail the second time. After the trial, even the DA says, I don't think their stories are true and I don't think that's what happened. They may actually know what happened, what happened, what happened, what happened. Remember how we were talking about Thomas and claiming she didn't represent Kim and Paul? Yep. It appears she did at least represent Kim because she filed the motion for a bond hearing in Franklin County after Kim's second arrest requesting a bond reduction. Yep. That's two of the five that I looked at before yeah. we started this. She filed them all together, and mm-hmm. I think the last one was a motion to withdraw. <laughs> yeah. You and know? speedy trial was yeah. one of them. And I think there was another one, but I can't remember what it was. Thomason claimed in that motion for the bond reduction that Kim was being housed in the Franklin County Jail built in 1937. 
She called it obsolete and not fit for use as a kennel or a zoo. She said that there were four female inmates being housed in a two-person cell, which required Kim to sleep on the floor. And the cell above had a plumbing issue and leaked into the cell that Kim was being housed in. No matter how hard they tried to clean, it still didn't get rid of the filth that was on the floor. I don't even think we need to get into talking about the Alabama prison system right now and the jail system. No. There's... We'll leave it at that, that we know that there are a lot of problems recently in the news. Mm -hmm. At the time the motion was filed, there'd been no indictment, and Thomason claimed the DA was unlikely to convince an impartial jury to convict him. She also alleged that the DA, which at this time is still Hargett, had delayed introducing evidence to the grand jury until noon on Friday, which caused Kim to endure cruel and inhumane conditions without being convicted or even indicted. I will go ahead and be the first to say that, given the statement that Kim gave, I imagine that what he thought was it probably wouldn't hurt her to stay in there for a little longer if that's what she had put Andrea through. Yeah. But there is that whole innocent until proven guilty and the right to a fair trial and all of these things that you are given under the Constitution to kind of invalidate your feelings on that matter. Yeah, it does. You know, and they should know just from the inconsistencies and all the statements that there's a possibility that there wasn't something quite, you know, just because they want to make somebody guilty for it. So somebody pays for it doesn't mean that it's okay to just do it. And I just don't understand how Kim became the target in this, because that's what it looks like. Yeah. And I don't really get it. Maybe it's because we don't have the investigative file to be able to see what they were looking at that maybe Mm -hmm. warranted that really laser in focus. I kind of wonder if it isn't the fact that Paul is so manipulative that, you know, somehow, however he behaved throughout this had something to do with it. It's possible. The motion for the reduction of bond or for the reduced bond Mm -hmm. wasn't even ruled on until September 27th of 95, after the indictment was issued for the capital murder. It's just unreal. (laughs) Of course, at that point, Judge John Jolly, who is the Franklin County judge, um, stayed the judge on both the trials, denied the motion. The indictment had been issued by the grand jury. Yeah. And I saw that and I just thought, she filed this in July. Yeah. September's not that long ago, but I mean, why take that long? Yeah. Now, it appears that Paul gave at least one statement, probably two. We don't have those either. But we do have several documents that provides some insight into what that statement might have contained. According to an article by the Huntsville Times, Thomason learned about Paul's involvement the day authorities began searching the lake. The article quotes Thomas as testifying in a hearing. I asked Paul if this is where he threw the body. He looked surprised and said, yeah, about there. Hmm. Uh, Yeah. Did he look surprised or did she look surprised? Because she kind of set him up right there. Yeah. She probably wasn't expecting him to... Maybe she was expecting him. Maybe she already had become suspicious of him. I mean, this is, well, no, she would have already known at that point. Kim told Thomason she was going to give the statement. Yeah. So maybe they'd already talked about that there's this possibility. So she just kind of asked him on the fly to see what his response was. She said she asked the question again, and Paul essentially reenacted the movements by pretending to get something out of the trunk of the car and then carrying it to the lake. On September 27th, 1995, Paul admitted to his involvement in a conversation with Thomason, who just happened to record that conversation. Hmm. Keep in mind, at this point, 
no one's really sure what the status is of her representation. You know, we went over, Paul and Kim believe she's representing them. The police believe she's representing them. The media believes she's representing them, them as a family. That's kind of where we're at at this point. Paul was later interviewed by Dr. Glenn Foster, who'd been hired by the DA's office to investigate the case. At least according to Paul, Andrea had been burned two or three days before the date Kim indicated. So roughly November 18, 1993. He admitted that he'd actually been the one to dispose of Andrea's body after he discovered her dead. He claimed he'd wanted to seek medical care for Andrea, but Kim had talked him out of it. So by this point, Thomason had at least made the decision she was no longer or had not represented Paul. In fact, according to a brief filed by Fred Simpson, one of the attorneys appointed later to represent Paul, Thomason made several statements that incriminated Paul Gonzalez to Andrea Gonzalez's disappearance. Attorney Thomason offered information that implemented Paul Gonzalez in return for a continued promise not to indict Kim on a capital charge. The DA wanted more information and asked Thomason to record her conversations with Paul Gonzalez. Thomason did not agree right away, but was eventually coerced by DA Hargett to participate in a sting operation against Paul Gonzalez. DA Hargett used the indirect threat of criminal proceedings against Thomason to ensure her cooperation. Immediately following the meeting with D.A. Hargett and investigator Glenn Foster, Thomason agreed to become an agent of the state. Thomason had a message delivered to Paul Gonzalez to go to her office and wait for a telephone call from her. Gonzalez complied. Thomason called Paul Gonzalez from the D.A.'s office where her conversation with Paul Gonzalez was taped. In this conversation, Thomason elicited information from Paul Gonzalez over the telephone that subsequently resulted in his indictment. Later that day, actually. It's clear from reading the transcript of the telephone conversation between Thomason, an agent of the state, and defendant Paul Gonzalez, Thomason employed deceptive practices. In prior sworn testimony, Thomason even admitted that she misrepresented things to Paul Gonzalez in her telephone conversation. That whole thing. So many levels of... Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This is why attorneys don't represent two people at one time that could have potential conflicting interests. Like representations like a blanket. It's only meant for like it's only meant for the one person mm-hmm. that the attorney's representing. Their representation can't blanket more than one because at some point in a case like this, the interests are gonna be conflicting. Yeah. And you can't protect and, one and still protect the other. And the way that I explained it to um somebody who was like, Well, you know, you'd think they'd have the same one. I'm like, No, look, it's like I have my blanket that I really like. It's like my favorite blanket. It's the perfect size for me and like one other kid. But it never fails. One of my other kids is going to come in and say, oh, I want to sit there and snuggle too. And now somebody's left out. Like one kid's got an arm out or they're pulling and now the other kid's got their foot out. And it you can't cover everybody ethically. Yeah. So... There's no way that she could adequately defend both of them. And maybe that's what she realized when she goes into this meeting. Like, there's no way I can defend both of them without somebody going down. Yep. And I would like to think the reason that she chose it to be Kim is because she believed Kim didn't do this. Mm -hmm. I kind of wonder. It's still crappy. Yeah. I kind of wonder if she actually doesn't know more than what's in that phone conversation or what that the statements that she's given, he told her. Paul's attorneys, they claimed 
they filed a notice first of an attorney-client relationship trying to suppress his statement. And then... Another reason for her not denying that she actually did. And get rid of the indictment because she was a witness to the grand jury. It was denied. All of that was denied. But I do think they did get access to her file eventually. There's a document in Kim's file that has no cover sheet, but it discusses issues on appeal. In a section entitled Nature of the Case, it states Paul made a video statement on the day of his arrest, September 27, 1995, in which he admitted he had disposed of Andrea's body after he found her dead in the family's small mobile home. His statement made no claim of involvement by Kim. And I think that's pretty important. I'd still like to hear the statement, Mm -hmm. but somebody else that heard the statement said he made no claim. And I don't know who wrote this. It's like a memo almost, but it's not in memo form. It's just three pages. Nothing to indicate who wrote it. The statements given by Kim and Paul seem to evolve as time went on. In a Supreme Court opinion, there's a reference to a statement Kim made to investigators in February that we can only assume came from the recorded verbal statement. The opinion cites Kim as telling investigators that Andrea had vomited on her shirt and had used the bathroom on the floor, so she repeatedly pushed Andrea into the hot bath water. She maintained she did not realize the water was too hot, but that it had scalded and blistered Andrea's arm, back, legs, and hands. She stated Andrea died later that evening after being put to bed. At Kim's trial, Paul testified that Kim had scalded Andrea by placing her in the tub with hot water. He claimed he went into the bathroom and saw Andrea standing there with the skin on her knees and legs literally cooked. She was bleeding and had large blisters. He claimed he wanted to take the child to the hospital, but Kim wouldn't let him because she was afraid that DHR would take Elizabeth and their unborn child away. He said Kim rubbed burn ointment on Andrea, bandaged her, and put her to bed. Hours later, he found Andrea dead and then disposed of her. Later, during a neuropsychological evaluation with Daniel Marson at UAB, Kim stated Andrea had said a, quote, cuss word, so she disciplined her by putting a small piece of soap in her mouth, which resulted in Andrea vomiting on herself and having diarrhea on the bathroom floor. She quickly drew Andrea a bath and removed her clothes. She claimed she had only placed Andrea partly in the tub when Andrea said, quote, Mommy, it's hot. She realized the water was too hot, although it was not scalding. She claimed she removed Andrea from the tub and observed Andrea's heels and bottom were burned and that her own arms were mildly burned. She applied burn cream to Andrea's burns. She further claimed that Paul warned against taking Andrea to the hospital because their children would be taken away. Andrea's burns began to peel the next day, though Andrea was able to walk and play with no obvious signs of distress, something that Kim stated her father had actually witnessed when he came over. Later that evening, Andrea seemed to be sick to her stomach, but was put to bed without incident. The following morning, Paul woke him up and told her that Andrea was dead and began blaming her, repeatedly stating, you killed her. Kim stated she believed Paul and felt responsible for what had occurred. She stated she was scared and shocked and couldn't move. She claimed she never even saw the body and that Paul claimed he'd take care of it. That would explain that scared and shocked Mm -hmm. statement that she made. Mm -hmm. Kim stated she gave the inaccurate and damning statement in order to, quote, get the kids out of Paul's hands. And so Andrea could receive, quote, a proper burial. Paul had allegedly agreed to give up parental rights to Elizabeth and Philip if Kim accepted responsibility. Kim stated if Paul forbade her from talking or even crying about Andrea's death, saying there's nothing you can do, she's dead, and continuing to blame Kim. If Kim questioned him about Andrea's death, she said he became extremely angry. She's quoted as saying, 
you didn't question him about anything, you'd get the shit beat out of you. He further instructed her not to leave the house and not to let anyone in. Dr. Marson also noted that Paul even indicated during his confession slash statement that Kim, quote, didn't mean to hurt that baby. He also believed that any decision made related to seeking medical treatment for Andrea would have been made by Paul and not Kim. And we'll revisit his evaluation later to discuss his opinions and impressions. Yeah. But, you know, at this point, we've heard initially that Andrea died a short time after this bath. That happened around 12 or 1230. Paul was asleep with Elizabeth, not around, uninvolved. Then Paul says, oh, actually, I came in the bathroom and saw her. Yeah. But he also says, oh, it actually happened, you know, a couple days before. I know. This is what just gets me. (laughs) I don't understand how that can change so much and how, I mean, yeah. And the things that we're looking at that have these statements and the conflicting information, they're literally within the same document. Yeah. I got most of their statements from that pre-sentence investigation report, which means they're literally in there next to each other in a paragraph, you know? Nobody looked at that and thought, wait a second. So also, you have the Supreme Court opinion saying Andrea's arm, back, legs, and hands are burned. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you get to Kim, who says it was her heels and her bottom. That's interesting, because if it was just her heels and her bottom, that's another thing that makes me think it wasn't Kim, because that wouldn't have killed her. No. Regardless of which statement was more true and accurate, Fred Simpson was right about the indictment coming down the same day. On September 27, 1995, a Franklin County grand jury issued indictments for both Kim and Paul on one charge each of capital murder. Thomason filed a motion to withdraw as Kim's attorney due to the fact that she was likely to be called as a witness for the state in Paul's case and likely to be called as a witness on behalf of Kim during a hearing to suppress her statement and during trial. So after Thomason withdrew, David Cromwell Johnson and Hilda Trapp Smith were appointed as counsel for Kim. Kim's arraignment was scheduled for October 27, 1995 at 10 a.m. at the Franklin County Courthouse in Russellville. John R. Ben was appointed as counsel for Paul, and Paul's formal arraignment was scheduled for the same day and location as Kim's. D.A. Hargett recused himself because he couldn't be a witness at trial and prosecute the case because ethics, even though he had been a witness at the grand jury proceedings, which was something that was raised later. But the Supreme Court said that it was okay for him to have been the prosecutor that presented the case to the grand jury as long as he didn't continue presenting the case once he yeah. served as a witness. I don't understand that either, but whatever. <laughs> At Hargett's request, Limestone DA James H. Fry writes to then Attorney General Jeff Sessions and requests to be appointed as prosecutor in both of the cases. It's less of a request, though, and more of a notice that he's agreed to prosecute mm-hmm. it if appointed, which he is. Attorneys for Kim and Paul filed for a transfer of venue almost immediately, considering the publicity surrounding Andrea's disappearance and their perceived involvement. And when I say attorneys for Kim and Paul, I mean the attorneys appointed to represent them individually and not as a couple. Even D.A. Hargett apparently commented publicly he didn't think Kim and Paul would receive a fair trial in Franklin County. Both cases were transferred to Butler County, but Paul's ultimately ended up in Pike County. And I think we talked about that last time. And I could not find the actual motion for Paul's case to be transferred to Pike County. But it seems like I remember reading in all of the documents that we got from him that the request to move his case 
from Butler County was mostly due to the fact that Kim's case was also going to be held there. And once, I mean, it's already got a lot of publicity around it. So then you have this big case. It's going to be really hard to get another impartial jury. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I remember, I know it was in an article, but I didn't find the motion either. So I know it's, I think it's in there anyway. I kind of wondered if maybe it got lost in the translation because it didn't actually take place, you know, so. It could have been an oral motion. They do those sometimes too. There is an order. There are actually two orders. There's the initial order moving it to Butler County, and then there's the order moving it to Pike County. I did see those. I just couldn't track back to the motion. I actually saw the other wording in. Being able to have a fair trial is a big deal. It is. And it's something that always is a topic whenever there's something like this going on or a big case. You don't want there to be any bias in that. No. Regardless of what's going on. Because if there is bias, you can appeal that. So the prosecutor wants to make sure he's getting a fair and impartial jury, jurisdiction, everything around that, because he doesn't want his whole case to be sent back for retrial or, you know, thrown out. And there was some concern even about whether the judge could be unbiased. Paul's attorneys, at least, filed a motion asking for the judge to recuse himself. Yeah. I think we talked about the fact that it was the Franklin County judge and he was planning to travel to Pike County and Butler County to still preside over these cases. But what Paul's attorneys had said was there is a lot of publicity around this. There's a lot of pressure from the community as a whole. And we feel like that may influence your decisions. Not that they didn't think he was a good judge, but just that it was possible that given everything that was going on, the judge would feel some kind of pressure to rule certain ways. Right. When I first saw that, I was like, well, you know, the judge isn't going to be a witness. Why did they want him to recuse himself? You know, there's there's always judges in the counties where these things take place. So, how you know, but a part of something else they said in the motion was that because they also asked for D.A. Hargett to be disqualified. But there it was also mentioned in the motion for recusal that Hargett and Jolly, the judge, had actually had conversations kind of about the logistics of the grand jury, from what I understand. Yeah. And that they were concerned that those conversations could also play into decisions that were made. Obviously, nobody was happy with the fact that D.A. Hargett had presented the case to the jury, the grand jury, at least up to a certain point before turning into a witness for that same grand jury. And exactly how Paul's statement was obtained. Yeah. Yeah. And it was right after those indictments came out. I think it was like beginning to mid-October that the letter was sent from James Fry to the attorney general asking to be appointed. Well, saying, oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm willing to do this if appointed. So it does, it does make you wonder a little, you know? Yeah. So after the indictment was received, Kim's attorneys and Paul's attorneys, but Kim's attorneys attempt to quash the indictment, which means exactly what it sounds like. Squash it. Yep. They claim Kim's statement was a product of ineffective counsel and not given knowingly, voluntarily, or intelligently. Kim claimed she was under the influence of drugs at the time she gave her statement, which was supported by testimony given by Thomason. She also claimed that it had been given due to promises made by Sheriff Pott and D.A. Hargett. Both Chris Hargett, the investigator, and Mike Mayfield with the Franklin County Sheriff's Office, they were both 
investigators with the Franklin County Sheriff's Office, but we have to make sure we clarify which target we're talking about. Right. (laughs) They stated Kim was alert and aware at the time she gave her statement and did not appear to be under the influence of drugs. Though they acknowledged she did appear to be under the influence of drugs a few hours after giving the statement. Yeah. That's kind of weird. So it kind of makes you wonder whether, you know, I don't want to say that there's impropriety, but, you know, whether there was a little bit of let's get this done, maybe even going yeah. on, not necessarily that they were being malicious about it, but and, and, and maybe I could that, totally be wrong. She That could, totally could be the case. And I don't want to say anything bad about these guys. But yeah, it, well, it also could be a thing of they were trying to find Andrea. Maybe they thought this putting some heat to say on both of them will get somebody to actually tell the truth. Absolutely. Yeah. If one thing's evident, it's that nobody really believed the story. Mm hmm. When Thomason had filed her motion to withdraw, she had said, you know, she thought she was going to be a witness or she assumed she was going to be called as a witness for the state against Paul and possibly on behalf of Kim for the motion to suppress her statement. Well, Thomason was right and she was called to give testimony in November of 1995. In that hearing, Thomason admitted she'd cooperated with Hargett to get an indictment against Paul. She claimed that Hargett told her that he would make an effort to reduce Kim's charge from capital murder to hindering an investigation and child abuse. He didn't. She claimed she confronted Hargett after receiving word the indictment had been issued for a charge of capital murder, and his response was the grand jury wouldn't listen to him, and they were even looking for a way to indict her because she'd represented Kim. Wow. I don't believe that. Yeah. Um, That's quite a claim. And I can't imagine that ever being the case. I've never heard anything like that unless, you know, the person actually did participate. Maybe if the grand jury thought that she knew information, which is protected under an attorney-client relationship, attorney-client privilege. Yeah. But is there a moral Mm -hmm. slash ethical obligation when you have more information about a child to report that? I don't really know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I know that there is, you know, there are standards. If you know by fact, if there's an admission of guilt, you haven't shared that information, then, you know, there's, there's something with that. I know that there's some ethics behind that. I think you have to give the best representation or give, represent your client to the best of your ability within the information and knowledge that you have. Right. And maybe that changes a little bit if you have it. I mean, you can't when statements not necessarily to law enforcement, but when you go up on the stand, you're under oath. You have to tell the truth and encouraging your client to perjure themselves. is not nobody's going to do that or they shouldn't do that. I guess that's that's the crux there. It's illegal to commit perjury. And if they're doing it, that's, you know, an offense in themselves if they're encouraging that. At a December 1995 hearing, because this took a little while um, for some of these decisions to be made, Thomason said she tried to discourage Kim from making a statement to law enforcement, but that Kim was determined to make the statement to protect Paul. Kim also reportedly told Thomason Paul had agreed to give custody of their children to Kim's parents if she'd take responsibility for Andrea's disappearance and death without implicating Paul, which is what we talked about in that neuro eval. That's what she told mm-hmm. Dr. Marson. She told Dr. Marson that Paul had said he hand over the kids and that she did it to protect the children, not necessarily to protect Paul. But there's also probably a certain 
level of protection there for Paul because by protecting him, if what she said is true, she's also protecting herself and her kids because, you know, she's not, he's threatened her. He's told her, don't put my name in it, essentially. Right. When Thomason's attempts to discourage Kim failed, she accompanied Kim to the Franklin County Sheriff's Office and tried to protect her rights as best as she could. I will say that according to a Birmingham News article, a complaint was eventually filed against Thomason with the Alabama State Bar. I haven't really dug too far into that yet, um, and I'm not sure that complaints filed with the State Bar are actually public unless there is some disciplinary action taken. True. So it could have been brought forward but never went anywhere. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. Motions to dismiss Paul's indictments were also made. His attorneys argued he made an unequivocal request for an attorney during the interrogation and that he was under the belief that Thomason was his attorney at the time she recorded their conversation for the state. Even though Paul argued that an attorney-client relationship existed with Thomason, the court ruled against him. I don't know that I necessarily agree with that ruling. I am not sure either. So when he made his statement, his Thomason wasn't there? Is that the idea? What... So initially, what she said is that the first time she found out about it was when they were out at the search. And she just kind of off the fly asked Paul, is this where you put her body or something? And he was like, oh, yeah, about here. Mm -hmm. And then in an effort, allegedly, to secure a lighter charge for Kim in a meeting with Hargett, she offers up this information about Paul potentially being involved. Right. And Hargett says, well, that's not enough. We need more, essentially, Mm -hmm. and wants her to record her conversation with Paul. So eventually she agrees to do that and calls Paul, tells him to go to her office, and then she calls him from the DA's office, calls her office from the DA's office, and they record her conversation with Paul. Right. Where later testimony from Thomason admits she kind of manipulated the conversation to get certain things out of him. Well, then immediately after that conversation, they bring him in for interview. Mm -hmm. And then the indictment comes down that same day. So this all happens really quickly. She calls, records the conversation. They call him in for an interview. Indictment comes down. Right. So essentially, he's saying that he was under the belief that she was his attorney. But since she wasn't, he wasn't represented. Is that the idea? Yeah, he thought he was having a conversation with his attorney mm-hmm. and no idea it was being recorded. He mm-hmm. thought it was protected. Obviously, it wasn't. So they're saying he's been under this belief that he was represented by Thomason since the beginning because she acted as a spokesperson. She allegedly filed that petition on his behalf for the child custody agreement or mm-hmm. enforcement of the child custody agreement. Negotiated book deals, movie deals. And that's in the papers that she did that. Mm-hmm. The newspapers, you know, give mixed stories on that based on her comments. But according to the motions that were filed, she did negotiate those things. Right. So he's saying, you know, I had every reason to believe that I was speaking to my attorney. And that means we have an at- attorney-client privilege. Also, they wanted to keep anything that Kim had told her out of his case because she had their argument where she'd been representing the family. All of that stuff should be privileged. Yeah. And Rebecca even judge, said that she didn't represent, even though she did, but yeah, she was saying that she had, didn't even represent Kim. But yeah. Surely they found that there was a, an attorney-client relationship in Kim's case because she was on the pleadings. <laughs> she had to yeah. file a motion to withdraw. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, simply the regardless of any other petitions in there, even if she was doing it pro bono and she was just doing it as a friend, if you represent somebody and you legally 
put a motion or, you know, a plea forward and you're on that paperwork, that's representation. Yeah. That, I mean, that's assumed representation, if not, you know. And she went proof, down. Proof of representation. And this is the thing, too, about Kim's statement is that there are so many inconsistencies that it makes it unreliable. Mm-hmm. And Thomason acknowledges she went with her to make that statement. Mm-hmm. Like she went to the sheriff's office with her. So I'm not really sure why Kim's statement was allowed in, to be honest. I mean, other than it goes to the credibility. But to mm-hmm. me, that's credibility to say you can't believe it. Yeah. When her you know, recorded statement has slightly different details, her written statement has slightly different details. I don't think the neuro report was presented to the jury because it wasn't issued until after, but I'm he probably was a witness mm-hmm. during the trial. I don't know that for sure. Um, there's a long list of witnesses. I think they used it for sentencing, though, didn't they? They did, but he was um, hired as an expert, so he could actually have been called to testify about his That's opinion. Right. Yeah, And since we don't have the transcript, we don't know. Yeah. Paul was called to testify. You know, to me, through all this, with all the oddities, particularly with Thomason, I almost can't believe there wasn't a mistrial. Yeah. You know, with all of the impropriety, at least appearance of impropriety, if nothing else, this whole thing is a little bit of a cluster, in my opinion. (laughs) I mean, supposedly, Thomason told talking about her going to the sheriff's office before she goes down there in her attempts to discourage Kim from giving this statement. Thomason says that she begged Kim not to give a false statement, told her the ramifications of doing that, and that giving a statement like that would put the possibility of going to the electric chair on the table because you're looking at capital murder. Hmm. Yeah. But nothing would deter her. I mean, she's giving legal advice, it sounds like. It sure does. I guess it's neither here nor there because it's over with now. But it's still, I think, what stands out to me about all of this is that there were people there that knew something wasn't quite right. And you'll Mm -hmm. never convince me that they didn't. And it bothers me that this trial was allowed to proceed knowing that nobody believed the story that was being given. But nobody seems to have tried to actually figure it out. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we do have the statement of, was it the DA or the sheriff that said, you know, we knew that we'd never really know the answer to this? Or It was the DA, I believe. Said that. Yeah, the DA, I thought. Yeah. So was that, yeah, Fry? Yeah. And yeah, that just bothers me because I don't know what Kim was actually guilty of, but I know that I don't think it was everything. And I don't even think it was most of it. Yeah. Thank you, and I agree there. I don't even think it was mostly her responsibility for Andrea's disappearance. And what bothers me about that is that she served time and took the sentence that was somebody yeah. else should have had. Between 1995 and 1996, numerous pleadings and requests for discovery were filed in each case, including appeals of indictments and certain orders. However, in February of 1997, Special Prosecutor Jimmy Fry filed motions in each case to reconvene the Franklin County jury in an effort to obtain additional indictments on Kim and Paul. This is 97. The trials are scheduled in April. He's wanting to go back now and try to get Mm -hmm. additional indictments. Both of those motions were denied. And by March of 1997, Paul and his attorneys had reached an agreement with Fry. In exchange for testifying, this is what I think happened. And this is 
just speculation. He files the motion to get the um, grand juries reconvened. Those are denied. So he's like, crap, I'm going to need somebody. I need, I don't have enough information to move forward on Mm -hmm. one of these cases. But instead of talking to Kim, who has at this point been put into the hospital because of severe abuse, Mm -hmm. physical abuse, made inconsistent statements that really seem to indicate she doesn't really know what happened. Instead of talking to her and attempting to make a deal with her, he makes a deal with Paul. And there's some comment in the media that he makes about if you got to make a deal with the devil. I don't remember the exact wording, but it is something about that. And so by March, when that order, the motions come out, I mean, the order comes out denying his motion to reconvene. He makes this, works out this deal with Paul and his attorneys. That in exchange for testifying against Kim, his capital murder charge would be reduced to manslaughter. He'd received 10 years, but only served two, and then spend two years on probation once he was released. He was given credit for all the days he'd spent in jail since September 26, 1995, which meant roughly six months after the agreement he was done. And in April of 1997, in what seems like, frankly, a shady move, Fry convened a new grand jury without consent from Kim or her counsel less than a month before trial and obtained an amended indictment. And I misunderstood in our first episode that we did on this. I thought for some reason there was an additional capital murder charge. That's not what it was. They amended the indictment to include more charges. So it was the capital murder charge, murder, manslaughter, and child abuse. Okay, so there was three, not four. So she had, well, it was four. It just, three were tacked on. Okay, gotcha. But, you know, I say that, and I'm not 100% sure that's even accurate. In one of those opinions from the Supreme Court, it references the child abuse count as count five. So unlike Paul, Kim was never offered a plea deal. In May of 1997, a Butler County jury acquitted Kim of all charges except the child abuse charge, which she received a 10-year sentence for as well. Kim did appeal the guilty verdict in July of 1997, and on March 26, 1999, the Alabama Court of Criminal Appeals affirmed the judgment of the trial court. Interestingly enough, James H. Fry was a judge for the Court of Criminal Appeals at the time of the opinion was issued, though he recused himself from the appellate proceedings. Just the fact that he was assigned to it seems odd to me, right? I mean, I guess... I mean, if he recused himself, I guess there's no impropriety because he didn't do it, but... And you have to take, as an officer of the court, you have to, you know, he's he's an attorney, you want to say there was no misconduct there, and then, then he moves to be a judge, you want to believed that he followed the law and was not involved in making those decisions at all. But it was strange to see his name pop up on it, knowing kind of how things had went, even if we don't have the trial to know exactly how, I mean, the trial transcript to know exactly how things were said. According to the Birmingham Post-Herald, Paul testified during Kim's trial, and this is what was said. I thought to myself, rest in peace, baby. I don't know why I did it. I don't want to lose my family. I tried to be a father and a husband once before, and I screwed that all up. And didn't nobody ask him how he screwed it all up? No. I'm, I, well, yeah. We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. But I think, yeah. I want to know, was Michelle called? To, did anybody check with her? We know there was at least one witness who claimed to have witnessed Kim abusing Andrea. Um, mm-hmm. I want to say maybe there were two. I saw two names, but I can't recall whether they were both related to the child abuse claims. Um, 
But why didn't... One was the neighbor, wasn't it? Um, maybe. One was a coworker. I think it was. Um, yeah. But did they call... I need to go back and look at their witness list. Did they call Michelle to see what had happened? Did they call Garnett Milton? Yeah. Who had already gotten custody of Anthony at this point and had custody of him for several years. Did they... How much did they look into Paul's background? Yeah. And... And if they do, you know, can they argue admissibility? I don't know. It's like some some cases you see, like they say, well, you know, that's not related to this case. You can't bring that forward. And in some places they bring up all kinds of history. So, I mean, maybe for, well, it could have been for for Kim's Mm -hmm. side, maybe. But that could have been a defense for her is that she didn't do it, but he did. He has a history, you know, or that it wasn't necessarily true. Because his Kim's statements weren't the only ones that right. were inconsistent. I mean, if you look at it, he can't give you a solid time when this occurred. It either happened two or three days before or right. it happened hours exactly. later. I'm not yeah. really sure. Um, it also seems like he, maybe the injuries sustained in the bathtub became more severe, almost, it seems like, in his statements as time went on. Yeah, for sure. Or at least he got more descriptive. Yeah, almost like he had time to think about it. and Just based on what we've read anyway. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we don't have the original statement to know. So he, he seemed to me like as circumstances evolved, he adjusted his statements mm-hmm. and things to fit what would work better at the time. Almost. Yeah. And we weren't the only ones that thought maybe other people played a larger part in this. Mm-hmm. Even with the two witnesses, there were more people who submitted character statements yes. on behalf of Kim. Absolutely. So I don't know that those, I would like to know who was called on her behalf. I would too. But there were a lot of letters on her behalf. There were there were a lot more than, I mean, I was a little surprised as I was going, you know, you always expect some, but yeah, there was, I, I don't even remember how many there were. I mean. Double digits, I think. Yeah, for sure. And uh, well, We can give a few examples. Yeah, because I think it's important. We've seen the comments and we know that a lot of people feel like Kim knew exactly where Andrea was. And we're not saying she didn't, Mm -hmm. but other people who knew Kim felt like she couldn't, she wasn't involved in this. In a letter from someone who had known Kim and her family for over 17 years, they wrote, She has already served two years in jail, away from her family and small children, trying to protect them from a very evil, mind-controlling man who I believe in my heart committed the crime Kim was jailed for. From a mother of a long-time friend of Kim's, I've never seen Kim abuse anyone. I have always been able to trust Kim, and I still do. From an individual who claimed they were good friends with Paul and Kim, all the times I went visiting them, Andrea was never treated poorly by Kim, which I have seen that with my own eyes. Another I have always held the opinion that Kim was not guilty of any heinous crime and was made to suffer by another party. I personally have only seen a person who loved her children and talked of Andrea as one of her own. And probably the most surprising was a letter submitted by a shift supervisor and detention officer at Lauderdale County Detention Center referring to Kim as a model inmate who never caused any issues. Though she'd been involved in one altercation while she was there, it was not started by her, and she had done her best to avoid it. In talking about Kim as a person, the letter said, I sat and talked with Kim at length about her past, her kids, and what she hoped for in her future. 
After I got to know the real Kim Gonzalez, I never believed she could have been guilty of such an act as a jury of her peers proved. I know she worships her kids and would never do anything to harm them. So that's coming from somebody that's in the prison system. Right. Interacting with her. And once you're in jail, do you really have any reason to continue on about it? I mean, maybe. I mean, I, I think I there are reasons. But, you know, if this is this is my thing through all of this. I mean, there's obviously people. She either was really good and snowed everybody for a really long time, um, which, you know, if you take into consideration all the things that have been talked about through all, throughout all this, Paul didn't do that. <laughs> I mean, there was not tons of people that, you know, supported Paul in this way and thought that he was an, you know, an upstanding citizen. Well, we won't know because there was not a trial. Well, no. To see, did but anybody I mean, submit letters for him? Right. Did, and that, I think that's probably what irritates me. I was just going to say, there's enough public... Yeah. comments and statements and things that we've read that yeah. said that he's not, you know, even if even if he has supporters. I mean, I don't think that he had as many people snowed. <laughs> yeah, know. that's just my personal opinion. I think it's hard to think that she just had everybody fooled whenever you've got a trained professional evaluating her mm-hmm. saying the same thing that's in these letters. And you know that this trained professional has not spoken to these witnesses or not even witnesses, but these people who are sending in letters on her behalf. Mm-hmm. But they're all saying kind of the same thing. They are, yeah. You know, the other thing I, I have to just add here is that if Kim was going to give, you know, these confessions, whatever statements she gave all along, and she obviously was in the state of mind that she was throughout all of this, which was, you know, at best depressed, why would she not have also just given the location of Andrea so that they could put her to rest? I think that's what I got. I've gotten the most out of looking at all of these statements. I still really want to see the transcript. Mm-hmm. I still really want to hear the recorded statements from both of them. I would still like to see the investigative file because what I think is important is that regardless of how you feel about Kim and Paul, the real person that lost here was Andrea. Exactly. She's never been found. She's never really received justice. It a, was an attempt to get justice, but did they really reach the, did they really achieve what they were trying to exactly, achieve, yeah. is my point. You're supposed to be looking for a five-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. You believe she's dead, but she was never found, and she may never be found. I don't want to believe that, because I believe that if they look at these statements, at least just based on what we have, there's going to be something in there that tells them where she is. Just like that comment about, I stopped on the bridge, but I threw her on the side of the road. Yeah. Why? Why was road used? Because road was never used in any other part of Kim's statement. Mm -hmm. I drove, I drove, I turned these things, but then all of a sudden I threw on the right side of the road, not off the bridge, not into the lake. Yeah. She doesn't even say into the water, not in the written statement, at least. Yeah. And I'm like, we said it's because... Probably. She doesn't really know what happened. Yeah. But somebody knows where Andrea is. I mean, for all we know, since Paul said he was the one that did it after the fact, you know, he just told her what happened. So she doesn't really know. She's just kind of regurgitating whatever he's told. And I think another statement that popped out, too, was that Paul woke Kim up and told her that Andrea was dead. Yeah. She never saw Andrea. You killed her. You killed her. Now, we don't know. Which one of those statements is actually I know. true? Yeah. I tend to lead more toward the fact that the neuroevaluation done after the fact um, was a little more accurate, maybe. Mm-hmm. 
I agree. You know, um, th- through all this, you know, we talk about justice for Andrea and, you know, I I firmly don't believe that what transpired through the trial, what the end result of the trial was not justice by any means. No. I think, you know, regardless of what happened, I don't think what the end result was is accurate, number one, but also child abuse isn't murder. And, you know, as much as we want to think that Andrea's around, I have a really hard time believing that, given the way everything transpired. But beyond that, I really, you know, we were talking about getting the transcripts so that we could really see what was said from the actual recordings and that sort of thing. Because I want to know, you know, I want, I would, I would like to know that maybe what they did was fair. You know, what they've said in the trial that we have paperwork for was accurate. I want to believe that justice was done as in as much as they could prove. But I just have a hard time with it. I don't feel like what we're seeing is justice by any means. I don't either. And it's been 30 years now since Andrea disappeared. And it's 30 years since she's been presumed dead, or I guess, what, 28? Since it was two years later, but it would have been 30 years if that's accurate. And we assume it is. We have no reason to dispute it. Mm -hmm. She's really had no answers. Nobody knows what happened to her. We have the statements that were said, but we've already talked about they're inconsistent. We don't even know if a burn actually happened. Right. Um, We don't know anything that happened. We only know what two people are saying happened. Did they find burn cream in the house? Did they find noxema in the house? Did they find... Yeah. Saying delight in the house. Did they find? You know, did they find these things that corroborated what she was saying? DNA, blood, anything. Exactly, because I wondered about the sheets. Were the sheets taken off the bed because they had blood on them? Mm-hmm. Um, after the comment was made about hitting her head, the hair in the bag. Yeah, I mean, we don't even know what came of that. And at all of this time, and all of these searches for answers, Paul spent. He got arrested in September of ninety five. He was out. By September of 97. Yep. But yet Kim had all of these charges levied against her. And I'm not really sure that I believe there's support for that. And maybe there is. It's just not. We don't have the trial exhibits. I wish we did. Um, So it's hard to really make a determination about how you really feel about everything. Because you're not looking at the totality of what was presented. You're not looking at the totality of the investigative file. It's just kind of a half opinion. Mm Mm-hmm. But it almost feels like Kim was the easiest one to look at. Yep. Because I she had admitted her involvement um, or allegedly admitted her involvement. And I don't, it just, it really is disappointing because it feels like it, it moved from obtaining answers and justice for Andrea to what's the best way to secure a verdict. Yeah. And, you know, I think personality-wise and everything that she had gone through, she's probably the easiest target. I just think as a person, she would have had a harder time defending herself, regardless of innocence or guilt. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. You don't know exactly what the processes were of those that were and the prosecution end or, you know, any of that. Um, 
we only know what we've re- we're reading and you know how how much all of that was considered and how much of that really did the jury hear and you know there's a lot of times that we know more than than what the trial jury hears so that's true they don't they don't always get all of the documents motions in limine are filed and there was actually a motion in limine filed to keep any mention of Paul's criminal history out. Yeah. That tells you enough right there that he, it said mention of his rap sheet. Um, I forget exactly, you know, how all, what words they like really didn't want it to be used. But that tells you enough right there mm-hmm. that if he has something in his history that the defense say, oh, this would be prejudicial for the jury to hear about these past experiences. It needs to be kept exactly. out. Exactly. And that's Which just is what we were talking about earlier. Yeah. That's just his attorneys doing their job. I'm not faulting them. I actually think his attorneys did a pretty dang good job. Obviously, he mm-hmm. got two years in prison. And you know what? I also think that Kim's attorneys were doing a fairly well, or a fairly good job after Rebecca dropped the case or withdrew or whatever. I think they were doing the best they could with what that's they okay. had. Well, that's my point is I think that it was so, I don't know, muddled or fumbled or whatever you want to call it by the time that Rebecca withdrew from a, representing them, though she wasn't representing them. Uh-huh. Um, you know, that mm-hmm. I don't think Kim really had a chance without like the best lawyers, you know. And these are appointed lawyers, so they're public defenders. Mm -hmm. They're having to work within the confines of what they're allowed to work because they have to submit bill and expenses, but they have to ask for permission if they want to get an expert. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, can we have funds to be able to do this? And they're public servants. They are public attorneys. Obviously, that that does play a part. Usually public attorneys have huge caseloads. So you know that she's not getting like undivided attention from these attorneys. I think they both, I think both of their attorneys did, I think they did what they could do, but we Mm -hmm. haven't seen the trial transcript. And I know we'll probably have listeners that think, what what are y'all even talking about right now? This isn't about Andrea. It is about Andrea Mm -hmm. because she still hasn't been found. And And all of this is basically a detour from her being found. Exactly. And somebody knows where she is. And unfortunately, we were told um, in the comments on one of on our posts that we made for Andrea that Kim is no longer alive. She passed away a few years ago. And I think that's bugged me, too, to think that she passed away with Andrea never being found and that there's a chance that she was wrongfully accused of these things. Yeah. This is just an opinion. I don't know anything about these lawyers, but I think that. James Fry needed those additional charges against Kim because he knew he wasn't getting a capital murder conviction. Yeah. And he didn't want all of that work to be him. for nothing. So yeah. he needed to get a different, because the court told them, no, you can't reconvene that Franklin County jury to broaden this indictment. Mm-hmm. So to get around that, he convenes a new one. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. After he's already gotten the plea deal with Paul. So what in the plea deal with Paul and his testimony against Kim did he think was not good enough? Mm-hmm. Because that's what it seems like to me is that he knew that he probably wasn't going to get that capital murder charge or that cap- capital murder conviction. And he had to get something. He wanted to get something. He needed to get something. Mm-hmm. And and granted, the public probably was demanding that. I mean, you know, yeah, they, they needed. Because the community is very much 
they're, they're still, it seems, very mm-hmm. active in Andrea's yeah. case. I don't think I've ever seen, um, I mean, we get lots of comments on different cases, but this has been one of those where you get, we've had a lot of comments yeah. on it. hundreds. About what a sweet girl she is, mm-hmm. or of what a sweet girl she was. I don't want to even want to say was, because I'd like to think she's out there somewhere. Yeah. All of this leading up to, you know, this is this is a lot of paperwork, a lot of conjecture, a lot of, you know, a lot of BS, in my opinion, some of it. Mm-hmm. But really, ultimately, it was a lot of distraction for what really happened to Andrea. And I would like to think that someday we'll know. I can't say I am confident that we will, but I sure as heck hope we do. She deserves that. That was one thing they said in that pre-sentence investigation. And you have to assume that whoever did the pre-sentence investigation report probably had access to everything. Mm-hmm. But after taking it all into consideration, their remark was, unfortunately, the whole truth about Andrea Gonzalez will probably never be known. And that is sad. Yeah. It's really sad. And I guess part of the reason that we wanted to go through all of these court records and talk about this is because what was known at the time based on the newspapers and things that were, you know, printed, rumors, whatever, weren't necessarily true. And I don't think that's at the fault of any of the newspapers or anything. It's just what was known. When you have inconsistencies like this, maybe going back and thinking about, okay, did you see Kim or Paul on a road somewhere, not by a bridge? Did you see them walking around in the neighborhood that morning looking for Andrea? Were they knocking on doors? When was the last time you actually saw Andrea playing in the yard? Did anybody see them at Food World? Did anybody see them at um, Jack's? Think about all of these things that maybe weren't known at the time and see if something about that stands out that you can put that into place. Wait, yes, I did see them. Actually, I did see Kim at Jack's and Andrea and Paul and Elizabeth weren't with her. Or, yes, we did see them at Jack's and they were all there. I mean, just think back to those. uh, It's a long time. 30 years is a long time. I can't even remember what I had for breakfast most days. Yeah. But just think back. And if there's anything that maybe stands out to you now, knowing that maybe what was initially said wasn't true. Yeah. Any of this information that were true. You know, there we know that what was said isn't a hundred percent accurate. I mean, there's just no way that all of it could be accurate. But like we said in the last episode and may have mentioned in this part, is that, you know, there's threads of truth run through a lie, make a lie mm-hmm. more believable. And I certainly have no um misconceptions that that's what happened, at least in part here. No, I tend to agree with you there. To make that story more believable, there needed to be detail. But the problem is when you're lying about a story and trying to make it more believable, you put the detail in the wrong places. Mm-hmm. Yep, for sure. So hopefully somebody will remember something or maybe maybe even just getting it back out there and discussing it will give Franklin County reason to pause and maybe go back and look at things again. Not necessarily for any other reason, but to see if there's anything in there they missed about where Andrea could be. Yeah. That's true. Through all this, please remember this beautiful girl that we've shared. You can imagine in your head, if you haven't known her, maybe you were a friend when she was a child and actually do remember her laughter, her smile. Can you think of all the things that she did as a child, an innocent little girl, even though she was going through all the things that she was going through 
but still managed to play and smile and, you know, all the things that little girls do. As you're thinking of those things and you're trying to remember if you knew anything from that time, please come forward if you know anything, any small bit of detail. And if you do, contact Franklin County Sheriff's Office at 256-332-8811. And you, again, can also message us on Facebook or through our website. And we'll include all of this information in the description details. Since Alabama Cold Case Advocacy's creation, we have dedicated innumerable hours to researching and networking in an effort to provide the largest platform we can to the cases we share. We shoulder all associated expenses with Alabama Cold Case Advocacy out of our own pocket, including the subscription fees for researching and production of the Unforgotten podcast to provide a cost-free avenue for the victims' families of those cases. We hope you will join in our efforts to raise awareness of Alabama's missing and murdered and support these families who have been forced to carry the immeasurable loss of their loved ones and the fight for answers. If you appreciate our mission and you are inspired to make a donation, your extra support will enable the ACCA to continue our research, share the cold cases, and help those families know that they are also unforgotten. Unforgotten is an Alabama cold case advocacy podcast recorded in conjunction with Riverside FM, hosted and distributed by Spotify for podcasters, available on your favorite podcast platform. Intro music for the show was created by Principles of Uncertainty, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Content and production is by Sellers and Stormy. Artwork by Sellers. Credits for music, sound clips, special mentions, and any source referenced in our podcast can be found in each episode's description. We hope you will join us on all the major social media sites and continue to raise awareness of our Alabama cold cases. Until next time, thank you for listening, and remember, justice may be delayed, but the victims and their families remain unforgotten.